Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I'm excited for whatever guest comes on the show, but I'm really excited for this one because right off the bat, I got to give a shout out to Matt Carter, who's a, a friend of the show. He was listening to the Jason Japani show and heard this guy be shout out. He's just like, hey, do you want to get him on the show? And I would love to get any national team player. So here we go. Today's guest played at the University of Manitoba. He's played pro in Germany, Japan, France, Italy, Switzerland, and Greece. He was a member of our national team from 91 to 2003, where he's part of our teams that competed at World League, World Cup. He's got a ninth at a world championship. He helped us win a bronze at Pan Am Games. And at a big part of his career, he was named team captain for us. Please welcome to the show, Keith Sandheim. Keith, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, no problem, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So another another national team guy, and I, and I love the stories, and hopefully you're like Brinks because he was a little shy and a little standoffish to come on the show, but once he started rolling, the stories kept flying. So not, not to put you on the spot, but I hope we can definitely get into one. But just to kind of set the scene for maybe some of our other listeners who aren't familiar with your career, uh, you being a Manitoba guy, what area did you grow up in? What other sports were you playing? Like what, did, what kind of switched you on to volleyball, and what else were you involved in as, as a kid? I'm from Oak Bank, Manitoba, and Oak Bank uh... – our high school really encompasses Dougald and some other towns around and Olin, Hazel Ridge. So there's a lot of really strong athletes. Uh, Trevor Kidd went to my high school. Corey Koski went to my high school. Uh, a number of other NHL players, provincial team players for different sports. And when I was young, I mean, that's all I did. I played everything I could. My town was a hockey town and I couldn't play hockey because I actually only have one kidney. I was taken out as a baby. So the doctors prohibited it and football as well. Uh, so I played a lot of baseball. I played soccer. I played basketball, volleyball, badminton, any, any sport, European handball, all of them, but uh, no hockey and no, no football. So that's really what turned me on to it. I, I guess I, uh, our junior high team in grade seven um, was one of the sports I could play and in my school area. Volleyball was better organized than everything else. And I had a group of friends that were really into it and actually played with those guys right through to grade 12. And that was it. I guess uh, the big break in volleyball came. Me and two other of my teammates decided to, in grade nine, um, go to uh, University of Winnipeg Westman volleyball camp. And the provincial team was there scouting players. We just said, hey, do you want to come and try out? And I said, why not? I made the team and just kind of carried me along. That That's awesome to hear. Yeah. So with the provincial team, was that 
your kind of first exposure to like how fun and athletic our sport can be? Or like, were you playing club at that time as well? Or really it was just like a, a good high school scene. You went to some camps and then you made the provincial team. I wouldn't even call it a good high school scene. Like at the time, you know, I'm from a small town, small school. Uh, if we made provincials, that was a big win for us. And um, I'm lucky I got to join my varsity team when I was in grade 10. And I tagged along with them for their first round provincial uh, matches. And then in grade 11 and grade 12, we did the same thing. We made provincials, but we lost each year in the first round. And um, going to the provincial team, though, that was where all of a sudden I got access to uh, with all due respect to my coaches, because I, I think they were all great. Uh, but the provincial team coaches really, you know, started to change the way that I looked at the game, uh, really start to see some of the things that I could do. And I got to practice and play with really great players, uh, even back when I was 15, 16. And uh, at that time, Manitoba was really strong. So just having those guys as teammates and guys that you played and practice against them, every day that really kind of brought out, I think, you know, the better part of what I was able to do. Um, I, I made that team and so did my teammate actually from my high school, Dale Cito, another big guy. And he, he went on to play at UW. Um, but uh, yeah, we just kind of, we actually went in parallel. We all made, we made those provincial teams at the same time. Uh, we, none of us were playing club. It really didn't exist where I, lived and um yeah I, I remember scott koski was on here and he was talking about it and there was only a handful of club teams at the time and so my first exposure to club volleyball was i think i first played in grade 12 actually yeah wow nice so what was your your awareness or kind of your entry point in that university volleyball like did you get recruited or was it kind of you were going to u of m and you tried out like what was the the whole thing there to get you on on a varsity team at u of m this is a funny story actually because um so my high school you know we played our provincial game our first round and you know we lost every year in the first round and the first uh, that my grade 12 year we were playing john taylor and John Taylor, the, the coach, was Larry McKay. And Larry was an assistant coach at U of M. And so I remember really clearly walking in towards the gym. And Larry stopped me and said, hey, uh, so I'd let you know that Garth's interested in, you know, maybe talking to you about going to U of M next year. And I remember <laughs> just looking straight at him thinking, you're just trying to get me off my game, dude. And I was like, yeah, great. Thanks. And I just walked into the gym <laughs> and we played our match. We lost. And, you know, I don't even remember how it all came shook down after that. But that year I ended up playing juvenile Bisons uh, and Larry was the coach. And then I, I played junior Bisons uh, that year as well. And Canada Games. I was on those three teams in grade 12. <laughs> yeah, I remember actually cutting my last class of the day so that I could make practice time because it was a 45-minute drive from my town. So I was pretty committed at that time, but my chemistry teacher didn't like it too much. <laughs> That's amazing because I'm just trying to think of putting myself in your shoes and like, Garth Pischke's earned a pretty good reputation in our sport where he's one of the best players of all time. Great coach where if anyone told me he was interested in me, I'd be like, oh, really? Like when and where? I want to talk to this guy. And you're just kind of like, yeah, we'll see about that. I'm just going to go play my game. 
You know what? Honestly, I wasn't being cocky. I was just really focused and I didn't know Larry at all. And uh, Larry became a good friend of mine and uh, we won a juvenile championship with him coaching. And, you know, I had a lot, I have a lot of respect for Larry. Um, but at the time I was just the biggest thing in front of me right now is trying to win this match <laughs> and, you know, do something that my school really hasn't done for a while. And I, it was, I was just focused. I really wasn't trying to put down uh, Garth or anything like that. I mean, the Bison teams, and actually U of W, they both had incredible teams um, at that time and two of the best in the country. And I, you know, barely ever got to see any volleyball, but I saw a couple matches on TV. And I saw, you know, they brought Penn State in and played some matches against Penn State. And I went to those games. And I mean, it honestly, up until I actually started playing club for U of M, I never even thought that going to university and playing volleyball was even a possibility for me. Nice. Yeah. And, and with everything you've accomplished in your career, Canada games actually didn't pop up when I was trying to do some research. So just real quickly, who were some of the guys that were on the squad with you? Was that kind of your first experience to playing? Like who, who would have been good in that era? Like would Alberta, BC, Ontario, Quebec, like the, the same ones that are very competitive today, been yeah. the teams then, or what was that era of Canada games like? Yeah. So our big competition really was Ontario. Uh, Quebec was really good. Saskatchewan had a strong, scrappy type of team. Uh, Alberta had a lot of um, athletes, really good athletes. Um, But we, I think we had a disappointing showing. And our our team had a lot of guys that ended up going on to play on the national team and all guys that ended up playing in university and had good university careers. So we had a little bit of adversity, uh, Setter got hurt, and, you know, I, I think I played in Canada Games two weeks after getting a cast off my, my foot. Um, <laughs> it was just a crazy time. But we finished fourth, and it was a disappointing result for us. I think I think Ontario, I think we lost Ontario for the bronze medal, and that would have been a disappointing result for them too, actually. So, yeah, I mean, geez, Scott Kosky was on that team, uh, Steve Welch. Um, a bunch of guys that had great university careers, Rob Olfert, probably a guy that should have got a shot at the national team. Um, the guy from my high school, Dale Cito, John Blatcher was on that team. Uh, John Laboon, Ken Cron, Darren Carlson. These are all guys that went on and had stellar careers in university. Um, so yeah, we, we were loaded <laughs> and we, that was probably the biggest discipline in my career up to that point for sure. And, Still one thing I wish we could do over. And just to, to jump ahead, so when you're on campus at U of M and you're on the squad, what was that environment like? Because I actually forgot that Larry was coaching with Garth. So that's already a pretty stacked coaching staff. Like, what was the squad like when you arrived? Like, what was the coaching going on in the gym? Because I imagine there's there's a lot of teaching and learning going on if Garth and Larry are in charge. You know, the first year, geez, I mean, what was interesting <laughs> I had a coach and uh, guys that grew up in Manitoba will know John Hickaway. Um, and he, he's actually really instrumental for developing my career. Kind of had a bit of a really, really passionate guy, really, really understood the game. But, you know, could be a little bit aggressive and sometimes, you know, maybe rub some players the wrong way. And so John ended up joining the, the coaching staff, too. And 
Um, so I had him basically as my provincial team coach or as provincial team assistant coach right through at club coaching as well. And then um, Randy Anderson was my coach uh, for Canada games with Craig McKenzie, these guys, Randy played on the national team and he played overseas. Uh, the volleyball scene in Manitoba was really strong. And then when you get to U of M, you know, you're kind of blown away by Garth because I mean, he's Garth and he's done so much and he just continued to do so much more after we, I was there and left, but you know, you start hearing more and more about all the things that he'd done and, you know, Larry was always sort of a very uh, analytical, strategic kind of guy. And John was really passionate, and, you know, aggressive. Yeah, I mean, we we had and, – and the players, Josh, the players. I mean, I walked into a program at U of M. And I know I was a big part of that, but myself, Steve Welch, Jason Gard, uh, John Blatcher, Dave Torres – um, and we had another guy that was from the Caribbean, St. Lucia, maybe Sean Matthews. So we had five or six rookies on the team. But then we had Dale Iwanoshko, Russ Paddock, Peter Strolius, Soren Pedersen. I mean, the team was good in the first place. And then Garth got a really good crop of, of rookies coming in. So. I mean, the environment was amazing. The volleyball program at U of M is one of the ones that, when I was there for sure, it got a lot of respect on campus. So being part of the volleyball program was, uh, you know, a thing that definitely got you noticed. And, yeah, I mean, you were proud to be there and get down to work, right? So. And what can you tell me about some of the teammates? Because you just listed a bunch. But one thing that I, I was really impressed when we had Scott Kosky on the show he mentioned just being around Dale, like that guy just does everything right. Like the way he studies on the bus or on the plane, like he just does everything right. And obviously to have an, an award named after him, well-deserved. So what was it like just in, in that environment? Like, cause obviously the team was competitive every year there, but what were some of the guys that maybe you looked up to or some guys that you really respected on the squad? I have to say that there was no one on the team that I didn't respect. Even my peers that were same age group, uh, I played, a lot of volleyball with those guys uh, growing up and I knew they were great players and awesome people. And then we got to U of M and it was funny because the first year was sort of, you know, rookies and vets. Right. And so there was always this competition and Garth has a great way of fabricating competition in practice. And he had no problem putting us against them or putting us in drills head to head against each other and things like that. And, Here's the thing. I, I played, uh, I'd been to some trial camps. Uh, like I went to the, the junior or the B team uh, trial camp while I was in high school. And so Dale was there. Peter Strolius was there. So I kind of got to know them just a little bit from that camp. Playing with them at U of M, though, was a whole other ball of wax. Like Peter was this machine, uh, one of the fittest guys I've ever seen, strong, jumped, hit hard, played the game, could do everything. Dale, you know, when you mentioned his name, Josh, I still got, I still get little goosebumps. Like he was, you know, he had an edge to him. Like, he, like, you know, it's not like he was just always super nice. Dale had a bit of an edge, but he was always, um, 
focused on the right thing, you know? So if he, you know, he didn't have a problem not setting again if you if you were having trouble scoring. He'd set the guy that was, hot, you know, hot and playing well. Well, talk to him afterwards, and he's like, hey, my job's to run the team, get the wins, right? So no problem there. But he was amazing, you know, like he was one of the best people. He's one of the guys, like, you know, rest in peace, Dale. He's gone too soon, right? And, I mean, uh, great blocker, great server. I think he played right side his first year because uh, U of M had a strong program. I think Dwayne Osborne was the setter. And so Dale actually hit. And I can't picture that for the life <laughs> of me, but he did it. He's just that guy. And, you know, uh, the story that Scooter told about, you know, him pulling out the books and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, everyone should have a guy like that around to see Scott, Scott named it, right. He said something like, you know, Bill sort of had the blueprint for succeeding in life. And so to have a teammate teammate like that, I mean, incredible Russ Paddock, Russ Paddock uh, is a guy that I looked up to a lot. I mean, I, I came out of high school playing middle, but my first year I actually played left side for U of M. And in my second year I played middle after Russ left his fifth year. And, you know, so as a, as a guy playing middle in high school, I'm watching him thinking, wow, this guy doesn't jump that high, you know, he, but man, can he block? And he's super effective uh, attacking and, I've never seen a guy gets the ref to change his call so many times. Like Russ is amazing. Yeah. So I could go on and on and on about all the players. Like that team was incredible. Yeah. I was just, I was looking up the results before the show and it honestly, it looks like between even like 82 to 91. So that would have like been more than your career, obviously, but it seemed like Manitoba was in the semifinals or further at nationals every year during that, that unbelievable run they had. So was that something that was talked about with the squad? Like it it was a national championship or bust or what was the mood around the team that you were just going to get better every day? Like I'm always interested with high achievers or that a team that does this well for so long, what, what is the message to the team or what are the expectations around the group to, to really get it done at the highest level? Well, you know, those guys passed quite a torch, right? And so you're looking at it and you're saying the goal is to win. There's just no other, there is no other thought really. And truthfully, you know, we talked about the Canada Games experience. And up until then, though, I pretty much, you know, played juvenile, we won, played junior, we won, you know, played junior my first year U of M, we won. Like, we just kept winning everything. So you thought that you were going to win everything. And I know that Scott touched on it, but back then, U of M played in GPAC, and then there was Canada West. And because the GPAC league was U of M, U of W, and Regina, and I think just before us, I think um, Lakehead University and Thunder Bay had a team, but their program folded so we went from four teams to three teams and the truth is Regina was fairly weak um and you know Garth being Garth sought out the best competition his belief was that you know 
if you want to be the best, you got to play the best and you got to beat the best. So we literally played way more matches than everybody. We went to tournaments as often as Garth could get us into. I, and we went down to the States at least once, if not twice a year. Went to Santa Barbara, played in that tournament. To Penn State, played in that tournament. You know, or played matches against Penn State. Brought teams to Canada, um, USC, really strong programs, UCLA. Um, Garth was very well connected and very well respected by a lot of the coaches in the NCAA. So, I mean, the experience couldn't have been better. And, I mean, if you look up the records, I don't want to, you know, pump our own pump us up too much, I guess. But if you look at the records at U of M when like I was there from 88 to 91 and like the record's incredible. Garth's coaching records are incredible, but as a team, we were like 55 and three or 60. If you include the U S matches, like 68 and eight or something like that. I don't even remember them all, but we just didn't lose a lot. And, you know, we won tournaments and the expectation from Garth always was that we have the team to win. So anything other than winning really was failing. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) when we didn't perform, we, we went back into the gym and we worked, we worked hard, really hard. And was there any overlap between your national team experience and your university experience? Like you guys take down the championship and you win in 91. And I, and I think roughly that's when you join the national team, but was there a tryout yeah. before that, or maybe a FISU or a B team experience? Like when did you kind of get your first entrance into the national team? Yeah. So I, I first tried out when I was in high school and um, for the B team, uh, which, would, you know, essentially had replaced the junior national team and, um, interestingly, I think Steve Welch, who was my teammate and good friend of mine, uh, he played on the junior national team, I think when he was 16 or 17, we missed him on the provincial team because he was with the junior national team. And, uh, so I, I played with Steve, I think all of my like first, second, third year, uh, at U of M and, um, Funny story, like my knees were actually quite, I, I really had a lot of pain in my knees, especially after my third year. And we used to practice on this floor at U of M and I don't know if that contributed to it or some tightness, but when I first got asked to try out for the national team, I told them I'll come, but I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to play this game <laughs> because my <laughs> knees are sore. They're like, well, let, us, let us worry about that. You know, you just come and try out and see what happens. And, so, yeah, I mean, I played, geez, in 91, we played in the FISU games, then we went to the Pan Am games, and then that's the year I joined. I made the, the national team, I guess, in the spring, but spent the t- summer with those two, uh, with the B team playing in those two tournaments. And then at the end of the summer, I joined the, the A team. And I think Garth was pretty, he was pretty chuffed about, you know, not, us not. I made it with Steve Welch. So we both ended up going to the national team and Dale had retired or finished his fifth year. So his program took a bit of a hit there and I don't think he was all that happy about it. But the way I looked at it was, uh, you know, I've got this problem with my knees. I don't know how long I can play. This is a great opportunity to join the team. They're going to go to the Olympics. I'll see what I can do. They want me around. Okay. 
<laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of how I made the decision. And when I talked with Garth about it, he was really concerned for two things. First, that my I wouldn't finish my schooling. He made that really clear at the beginning. And then he thought, you know, that I, I still had a lot, a long way to develop and that I would develop well at U of M for two more years. And I really don't disagree with him. I mean, the program was incredible and we played so many good matches and there were other great players coming into U of M um, or guys that were on the bench that were you know ready to take over. Um, but I really just felt like, geez, this might be my only chance. So I better give it a shot. Now, as an, and as an outsider, I'm always excited to ask this because I think the, the internet might have changed it where now you go to a tryout and I'm sure a lot of the university guys know that that's so-and-so or that's TJ or that's this guy. When you walked into a national team tryout, were you starstruck by anybody or because there was a little bit of a disconnect, like there would have been guys you battled with at the university level, but did you know the senior A guys or guys who were playing overseas professionally? Um, well, because I played in the, in the program for three summers, I knew who a lot of them were. Um, I didn't know how great they were, but we did scrimmage against them a few times. There's some funny stories about that I could go into, but um, we, yeah, we scrimmaged against him a few times and, you know, John Barrett was one of the players. Well, Barrett's a legend at U of M. Um, he should be a legend in Canada if, if people don't know him, but he's, you know, so he was a player where you're just like, whoa, on the court with John Barrett. And then of course there was Al Coulter and Brad Willock. And I mean, I got to play against Randy Gingerian University and, you know, some other players that were there and you just kind of blown away by them when I made the team, not so much because it already was familiar with them a little bit. And I think if you, I don't know if everybody else has this kind of perception of me, but, but I, I really didn't care who was on the other side. Like it didn't really, eh, it was nice to, to be able to talk to them and talk volleyball and, pick their brain and learn some stuff from them afterwards. But when we played, I, if they were good, it's just, wow, that's a really strong player. We got to figure out how to beat that guy. And I didn't care about their names a whole lot at all, to tell you the truth. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that one. And you and I were talking before the show, it, it seemed like the national team really went all in for the 92 games. So you're joining the squad at, at a very exciting time. Like what was the mood around the team? What was the training environment? What were the the competitions like? Like you're, you're a young guy who chooses to forego his studies and joins the national team. And it seems like it was, it was a peak for a lot of guys career. And this was going to be a, a defining moment for everybody. Yeah. I mean, that was a great time to be with the program. Uh, they did, they did push their chips into the middle quite a bit, Volleyball Canada. You know, I think it was always a challenge finding funding. But uh, when I joined the team, they did something really interesting, right? Um, anyone that played overseas, they paid a transfer fee. I think players still pay a transfer fee now. And that transfer fee was used to supplement players that were staying in the training center. So... I know other guys have talked about carding and, and some of the challenges with the carding system uh, that the program went through. But I think we got, when you got an A card at that time, you got $450 a month. And then you got uh, $300 from the team, from those transfer fees. So 
some guys that were around maybe got a little bit more, but when we were first joining the team, we basically got 750 bucks a month to, to live on rents, food, etc. And, um, that said, the volleyball was awesome. So that was, that was a little challenging. You know, you had to watch your money and all that stuff, but, um, you know, you're in the gym all the time, you know, you're not really doing a lot other than that. And, uh, but we did play some great competitions and we, you know, the first 91 and 92 prior to the Olympics, uh, the program was in world league. I'm, I'm not sure if, if those were the first two years, the program was in the world league, but I, I think it might be. And, um, yeah, like just seeing these teams come through, you know, we always seem to get Holland, always seem to get Cuba. I think the States was in our pool all the time. I mean, these were top, top teams in the world. And I mean, Peter Blanger and Rons Werver and, you know, a bunch of the other Dutch players, the U.S. team, uh, the Cuban team was amazing. So that was a real eye-opener for me, seeing these guys, who I really didn't know, and seeing Joltis Bang and some of the incredible Cuban players do what they do. It's just mind-blowing. Um, but yeah, that that they pushed their chips into the middle on that, and uh, yeah, they really went for it. And when you get named an, an alternate to this squad, like, how are you feeling as a young guy? Like, are you feeling like there's a little bit of like... Uh, a pecking order that you're, you're happy to be a part of it and it's an honor, or did you feel like, honestly, like you should have been on the squad or, or what is the mood and where did you kind of place yourself within the squad? See, that's an interesting story, Josh. Um, I don't, I think I was, a, I think it was actually named to the squad and then they reshuffled. And then I ended up being a, an alternate with Steve Welch. And there were two other guys um, that they, they kept, they, so they kept 12 players plus four, uh, sort of development players, Steve Welch, myself, Jody Holden, and Steve Smith. And uh, Steve Welch and myself ended up being named the alternates. But I, I really feel like Steve Smith got the short end of the stick there. I feel like Steve really deserved to actually be on the team. Um, and I don't know who you would take out or replace. You know, these are coaches' decisions, but like Steve Smith was – a player, a real strong player, and he was performing. So, I mean, myself, that was a, it was a really competitive group and a tough group. I was I was happy to be named an alternate. And you know, when you're 22 and you get named an alternate to the '92 Olympic team, and you think, oh well, we're going to get a shot in '96. You know, I'll just I'll I'll be on the team in '96, right? So you know, you're thinking, well, I'm happy to be part of the team and just wait till my turn comes around in the next, you know, Olympic cycle. And, uh, yeah, never did. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you, if you go back, you know, I might've fought for it a little bit more, like just when chatted with the coaches about it, but I mean, everyone that went deserved to go and everyone that put in the time deserved to be there. So, I mean, it's, you know, how do you say you deserve it more than someone else or less than someone else? It's, you know, it's a tough job to pick from that group. It was a strong group of players. So, 
And one thing I'm, I'm learning by doing the show is to go overseas and play professionally. Like not every league is obviously the same. Even clubs are a little bit off sometimes, but even how guys find their first contract seems to be an interesting experience. So I'm curious with you, you're a good university player. You're a national team guy, but how did you get that first gig, that first contract and to go play professional volleyball? I'm actually really glad you asked that because I was thinking about it, uh, you know, so when you joined the national team back then, you used to have to sign a contract with the national team for three years. You were, you were committing to staying in the training center for three years because, uh, you know, back then it was really different. Um, teams were only allowed to have two non-domestic players on their roster. So not non-European not non -European players like now, right? In fact, it's not even the same now. Before, if I was playing in Germany, and that's where I ended up going for my first uh, contract, they were allowed two players that didn't have a German passport. That's it. Didn't matter if they were Dutch, Polish, doesn't matter. So it was really hard to get them. So guys, if guys got offered contracts and the money was good, they really wanted to go. So that contract actually, I think, stopped some really strong players from joining uh, the training center. But interestingly, they changed it after my second year. They changed it from three years down to two years. And that coincided with the 92 Olympics. I guess it maybe it was, yeah, nine, after the 92 Olympics, after the 93 season. So Bill Knight, had, uh, you know, great player, and he was scheduled to play in Germany, but he, he'd been having some back problems and wasn't really sure. And I got a call out of the blue, and it was Bill. And Bill said, hey. I've signed a contract with my team in Germany. I don't think I can fulfill the contract. Are you able to come? I've, I've told him about you and are you able to take my spot here? I don't want to leave him in a bad position. <laughs> I went to the program, asked, they're like, yeah, you can go. And that was my first contract. I just, Bill Knight put in a good word for me. The team, I guess, knew who I was. We played some matches in Germany and, they decided to take a chance on me and it was right at the start of the season. So they didn't really have a lot of extra time and it was maybe hard to find a player. And I don't know. That's, <laughs> it was, it was great. It was great for me. I mean, the team I went to was um, SV Bayer Wuppertal. So Bayer Wuppertal was part of uh, Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen had some, it was one of the top teams in the, German Bundesliga for football. And I mean, <laughs> Kleinman was on that team, like some great guys. So we'd go and play or practice in Leverkusen and play our matches in Wuppertal. You walk in and you look on the soccer field. And I didn't know a lot at the time, but about, you know, all the soccer players, but I was like, that's Jurgen Klinsmann. What the holy crap, <laughs> you know? And so, and then, but my, my team, I didn't know. I did not know one player when I got there. And it was stacked like Wolfgang Cook was an incredible player for the German national team for a long time. Jens Larsen may be one of maybe the best, if not one of the best Danish players of all time. I had no idea who these guys are. Bernard Hoffman, great middle player, just, you know, all of a sudden boop, get a block, boop, hard to block, boop, another kill, boop, another block, <laughs> great serve, dig some balls. He was awesome. The setter, is right up there with the best setter I've ever played with in my life. His name was Yvonne Lee. 
and he's also passed away. So rest in peace, Yvonne. I, I love that guy. I mean, the, uh, the team was so close, so good. Paul Schmink is a former national team player for, for the German national team. Olaf Becker. I mean, these were really big players from Germany. And all of a sudden, I'm on this team. And wow. Here's a funny story for you, Josh. My first, so I'm, I'm with the team, not even a week. And Yvonne was an incredible setter. And so I, could, I clicked with him right away. You know, I'm, and I was more of an attacking middle player. I know Brinks said that that was his thing, but that was really my thing. And heavy ball, right? Blocking, okay. Passing, defense, good. But attacking was my thing. And I had no problems with how he was setting. But the assistant coach comes over and says, because he could speak English and the setter couldn't. The setter was also the head coach, Yvonne. So pretty, pretty important guy. I still hadn't figured that dynamic out. But he asks me, Yvonne wants to know if you'd like any adjustments to the set. And I said, no, they're, they're all great. Because no one was blocking me. I was scoring. I was like, this is great. And he, the assistant coach looked at me and said, and his name is Stefan Ma. Stefan said, no, Yvonne wants to know if you'd like it a little bit further back, a little higher, a little closer from me, him, a little further away from him. And I said, honestly, it seems to be good. And Stefan stopped me and said, if you ask for it, he will set it how you want it. I'm like, okay, just a little bit higher and a little further off the net would be awesome. No problems. After that, every time, every time. I, so I played my first two years pro with that team. And I want to say in my second year, I don't think I got blocked until after Christmas, like first four months. I don't think anyone blocked me. And it was a lot to do with Yvonne setting and the other strong players on the team. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, I actually had some notes written about your, your time in Germany because you, you finished first in Bundesliga, you finished second, you won a German Cup, you finished fifth in Champions League, and, and you kind of hinted at it there that the, the foreigner rule in Germany has changed quite a bit. So I'm curious, you're part of this top club. Did you ever feel the pressure of, of a foreigner to really perform and that they brought you over and they used one of their spots on you? <laughs> like, did you feel like you, there was an expectation or, or there was like you said, it was such a good team that it was fun to go to the gym every day. It was fun to compete because you guys were getting it done. You know what? I was just so afraid of failing, to tell you the truth, that I wasn't worried about any of that other stuff. I was really just focused on me. I spent a lot of extra time in the gym because of that weight room, riding the exercise bike, making sure I didn't get out of shape. I was I left that team in the best shape of my career, actually, because I was so worried that I was going to go back to the national team and miss out on my real goal and real dream of making the Olympics. So I really, I didn't think about anything else. I didn't, I honestly didn't care what they thought. I, I knew that I could play. And I mean, playing with those great players though, you did feel the need to perform because they were performing, right? So you didn't want to be left behind and you certainly didn't want to feel like you were the weakest link in the team or any of that stuff. And I still had a lot to learn. I was still a young player. So I never worried about it, but I also was afraid of not succeeding. So yeah, I really put in a lot of extra, a lot of extra work there. 
And one thing I'm fascinated with with professional volleyball is it looks like that was the club that you spent two seasons with, but every other club I think was one at a time. And I think most volleyball contracts, even if a guy stays at a club for a few years, it seems like it's one and a team option, right? So did you really get comfortable with the idea of betting on yourself and and going to these different leagues? Or how did you feel about like every offseason having to find a different club or make a move or do something like that? Well, interestingly, uh, after my first year, I actually, it was during the playoffs. When a team from Belgium came up and talked to me while we were, and like the match was over and we were gathering all our things up and uh, came to talk to me about it. And they offered me, they offered made me a really good offer actually. And uh, I, I said, I'd think about it. And I went back to, you know, my team and I talked with them and we actually talked about signing a six year contract and what that would look like and how it would impact my ability to play on the national team and things like that. And I, you know, they weren't sure that it was the best thing for me to tell you the truth, but they put it out there. The coach really liked me. Yvonne really liked me. He was upset actually that, that I hadn't been re-signed yet. And those guys were talking to me. So I ended up signing a one-year contract mostly because it seemed a little bit, I don't know, scary to sign a six-year contract. And um, the reason that it's not done is, and I think other guys alluded to it when you asked that question, is people just don't really know what their budget is going to be, right, from year to year. But this was a big club um, sponsored by Bear. like bear aspirin (laughs) and I guess their finances were in order and they had decided that they wanted to look at, you know, building a a building on the results that we'd had. Um, And, and that team had good results before I got there and they had good results after I left. So, um, you know, it wasn't all me, but they were looking at how they were going to, I think, build a strong team for a long time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of thankful that it, it didn't happen, but I, I wasn't afraid of betting on myself or, or, you know, having to find a different team either way. Like uh, if I hadn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to go and play in Japan, which was a, a great opportunity. If I, if I had signed that secure deal, um, I, I think of the things I would have missed out on. Um, so I'm kind of glad it didn't work out, but yeah. Yeah, when you look back at your career, whether it's Japan or something volleyball crazy like Italy or, or a couple of years you spent in Greece there, like what was the the pro experience overall? Like uh, when we had Dustin Snyder on the show, I thought it was hilarious where he's like, some clubs are just plain and simple, more professional than others. Some are like the manager isn't even on the same page as the coach and they, they would sign the setter who doesn't even set the same offense that they want to run. Like there's a disconnect. And then there's some that are over the top professional, right? So when you look back at your experience, what were some of the, the good things going on? And what were maybe some of the bad things going on with your pro clubs? So I have to say I had... Um, a great run. My first two years in Germany, that team was professional, well run. You know, they were they weren't in the same category as the teams from Italy at that time or France. Those are the two best leagues, uh, you know, in Europe. But but they were well run, organized. You never had to worry about anything. Like I didn't have to ever ask them. Oh, you know, hey, uh, you guys gonna pay me this month or so? It just here's my bank. And, you know, every month, same time paycheck was 
put in. Uh, the teams in Japan are, uh, they're as professional as you can get. I know there's other great clubs in the world and stuff, but I, my experience in Japan, I, I mean, it was amazing. It, it was incredible. And then I went back to Germany um, and I actually had tried to go back to my team in Wuppertal, but they'd already signed their players. And so I ended up going to sort of a big, a big rival in the South, uh, Friedrichshafen and Friedrichshafen. I mean, that year was a bit of a, a gong show, uh, but mostly I, I don't think that's reflective of the club in any way, sense or form. We just had a coach that kind of was a, a really good coach, but he, he tried to implement a different system and uh, we weren't succeeding. We had a team that was built to win and, um, you know, he was trying to get us to play a triangle, which was, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Trust me <laughs> on that one. But that those fans, the fans in Friedrichshafen, some of the best fans I've ever played for. I mean, they were right there with you. You know, their heart was in it. They, you know, people, they'd be there singing. They'd be, you know, having beers in the stands. They've all got their scars. Some of the best fans I've ever played in front of. You know, so my first four years, that was my experience. My next year, I went and played for Paris Saint-Germain. I mean, PSG is a huge club in France. And their volleyball program is sort of rebuilding. But, uh, I mean... The coach was amazing. Uh, Eric Engapeth, uh, his son was killing it, Irving. Uh, played with some great players. Played with Kent Greaves there, another Canadian guy, and Kevin Chiswell. Uh, the big flying key, as the coach called him. And uh, Jacques Yoko. I mean, we Franz Gramvorka. Like, that was an awesome team. Um, and then from there, I went to uh, Italy. So a team that had just joined from uh, second division, Falconara, but they had a an incredible history. The team was really good. The coach was good. Um, I know some other guys like Steve Brinkman had mentioned that, you know, he wasn't playing. Same with me. I was on the team, but uh, for whatever reason, whether it was level of play, style of play, confidence in the players, whatever, I wasn't inserted into the lineup. Josh, that is a whole other story, man. Um, I won't even get into that. But in my experience, anyways, and then I went back to France after, partway through that season. Then I went to um, Panathinaikos, which is a big club, but that was a mess. They were literally a mess. I was there with Ross Ballard, and we both left and and stayed in Canada at Christmas when the team was uh, trying to qualify for the Olympics. Then I went to Lausanne in um, Switzerland, and that was a, a great club. Well-organized, well-run, good coaches, good coaching. And then I went to Patra in Greece, and that was also a very well-run club, uh, good coach. You know, Greece is, like other guys have talked about it, and the experience is both great and <laughs> disappointing, too. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know Brinks talked about the gangs, and he's so right. I mean, he's so <laughs> like, yeah. I don't even know where to start on, on Greece. 
Yeah. So they didn't pay Ross and I. So we decided that, okay, if you're not going to pay us, we're not going back. We're going to just stay in Canada and try and focus on qualifying for the Olympics. And uh, so then, of course, you know, you're breaking the contract. They broke, you know, they were in default because they hadn't paid anything. And oh, what a mess. Now, is that something you're just aware of or is there a standoff? Because I've talked to other guys who've played in Greece and there's just a sense that like if you lose a couple games in a row, like there might be somebody in the gym the next day who even though you don't interact with that person, you just know that they're there to kind of let coach know that like you're not going to lose a third one. Like there's some serious people around like guys aren't getting paid sometimes. Like was there just a mood around the team or did anybody actually like pull you aside and have an interaction to let you know that like what's happening is not acceptable in their eyes? Well, so they couldn't. I don't know how they could have. Ross and I were there and we were performing. We were performing well. No one was getting paid. The Greek players weren't getting paid. We had problems with gym time. The coach quit. So Dragon Mihaljevic, uh, he's the one that brought me there because uh, he'd been in Canada and was familiar with me. And, you know, and a couple months in, he pulls me aside and he's like, hey, Keith, your money's not safe here. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the club, but... This isn't good. I don't know. So he ends up leaving. They get this guy, George. I didn't know who George was. You know, like the program was in complete disarray. Like we're in practice and the, the, the Greek players were basically striking. Like, so, you know, four or five guys show up for practice. Ross and I were always there. And then, you know, two or three or four other guys from the team. So we didn't even have our full team. And, you know, I remember one practice the coach is trying to figure out what to do. And we're literally playing basketball. We're like, boom, 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 shooting hoops, shooting hoops, shooting hoops. We waiting for practice to start. And nothing happened. It was just, it was a mess. And I, and I hate to say it because I do think Panathinaikos is a huge club. And, you know, and I just think that they had some internal problems, maybe with management or there, uh, there was some discussion about people, you know, some sort of power play with guys losing their position and wanting to show that the team wasn't going to be successful without them type of thing. And, but was, you know what that year was, um, so that was a year there was a huge earthquake in Turkey, right? If you, if you look it up and that reverberated right through into Greece. So Ross and I were staying at a hotel in downtown Athens uh, that was owned by one of the guys in the club and we're eating lunch on the rooftop. Okay. And all of a sudden we start hearing things shattering plates and bottles and everything were falling off the wall. And all of a sudden we were like, this is a freaking earthquake because the buildings are changing. So we do what you're not supposed to do. Right. We run down the stairs and get out on the street. And as we're running down the stairs, walls are cracking. And we're like, what the hell is going? We get on the street and the aftershocks are bouncing cars and stuff. And like Ross and I were just like, what is going like on top of everything else that's happening with the team? What is going on? Here, right? <laughs> and yeah, so. Like guys on the team were afraid to sleep in their houses and their apartments. They were sleeping on the beach, you know, just in case something else happened and shook their building or whatever. I mean. (laughs) 
Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. No, it's... You know what? I, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you that the extension of that story is we went to play IAC, A-E-K, like a week after that. And because our team was in right in proper Athens, Athens is on a, a huge rock, right? And that's why, I guess, they say the Acropolis and some of the other structures that have been around for thousands of years have never fallen because... The big rock sort of isolates it. But Ayak was in a part of, you know, suburb of Athens, I guess, that was hit really hard. But we went to play them about a week later, maybe. And we get in the gym and, you know, it's kind of somber, right? Like everyone's like, Wah. and our fans are there. So when Brinks is talking about the game, and it's funny because he played for a team against Panathinaikos, and I'm playing for Panathinaikos, right? And so when he said his story in your podcast, I was like, yeah, I can see that. Because <laughs> we're, we're in the gym and our fans are there and they're all singing and there's nobody else there because I don't think people are going to come, right? Because, but our fans came. And so before the game, so this, if you can imagine, it's a court inside sort of like the stands were up high and the and the court was kind of in a pit right like there's an i don't know eight foot wall up and then the fan the stands went out right so you could look down and see the entire court and we're warming up and all of a sudden some guy gets thrown over the railing <laughs> like what what just happened? And I so I like the Greek guys are all talking in Greek, and so we asked, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's not going to be good." And so now the riot police are there, and they've sort of sectioned off all of our fans with two lines on each side. And I'm like, "Who cares? There's nobody else here." Oh yeah, no. People start filing in. They're all on their phone. They all start singing. And I'm like, what is going on here? I lean over and what, what are they saying? Oh, they're singing, there's more coming, there's more coming, there's more coming. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And he's like, no, it's really not good. And so we play the match. And I know that, you know, Steve had talked about it and other guys, like guys are getting spit on, like so much so that they're literally wet on the back of their head. And bottles and coins and uh, lighters, everything's being thrown at us. And we play the game and we end up winning, right? And I know Ross and I were like, 
okay, well, we won. All right, let's go. And our my teammates, they just bolt. The last point goes down, and they take off. And one guy grabs me, and he's like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. I was like, whatever. I was like, I've had whatever. And nobody grabs, like, they don't grab their clothes or anything. And they, they run into the locker room. And there's guys, like, on the bench grabbing up the bags and sweats and everything and full as much as they can handfuls and taking off. I just walk over, grab my things. Ross grabs his things. We walked in the locker room. No one touched us. But in our locker room, there were guys that had like massive welts all over. They were just getting pounded. And we're like, I look at Ross and we're just like, what is going on here? Yeah. So it was just total they ripped, I, I think, I'm sure, they've ripped a sink, like, out of a bathroom and threw it over the railing. Like, it was just total pandemonium. Yeah, nuts. So, yeah. <laughs> that, that is unbelievable to think about how, like, rivalries in Europe are. And, like, when you hear about, like, soccer teams having to play in front of empty stadiums, it's, like, it's that level of fandom that leads to those decisions, right? Like. My friend, you know, I played in Paris. We went to watch a game, PSG versus Bayern München. Not really two teams or countries known for hooligans and all that stuff, right? That, that time it was usually when it was a Premier League from UK, right? And we're going with a couple of teammates. I know Kent was there, Kevin Chiswell was there, two French guys. And we're walking, we're joking, and we see these guys in full riot gear. And the two guys that we went with, they're just the kidders of the team. You know, they're always laughing and making jokes. and They're like so serious. And we start joking about, you know, the riot police. And they're like, hey, 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 no, 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 nothing. I'm like, what? And they're like, don't say anything. I'm like, what? And he goes, see those guys? Yeah. Full immunity. What does that mean? Yeah. If they think that you're going to cause a problem, they can do whatever they need to do to, to stop you and they're not going to go to jail or anything. And we're like, what? <laughs> like, you know, so we, we're just like on our best behavior. We walk in, we watch the match. There's no problems. And we walk out, you know, just perfect citizens, right? Just, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, I never expected that at all. It was nuts. Oh, amazing. I, I'm just looking at the clock and I know you're, you're a busy guy. So I do want to jump around a little bit and go back to uh, yeah, sure. the, the national team stuff. And one thing that caught my eye is uh, when I reached out to Trap and just asked him like what it was like playing about with you. And he said it was very clear that one, you always cared about winning. But two, if he always felt like you did this with him, but other guys as well. You always went out of your way to make sure everybody felt comfortable on the team. And I'm wondering, was that something that you maybe got the green light from coach when you were named captain in 92? Or was that just something that you wanted to carry yourself, that you were going to be competitive, but you were going to be a good teammate as well? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I I don't, I think that's just who I am, honestly. Like, I don't think that that, uh, you know, was ever asked of me specifically by a coach or, or anybody. It's just, I think maybe that came from Manitoba and U of M maybe it came from my high school, but basically if you're, if you're on the team, it didn't really matter. Like you're, you're part of the team. So, I mean, there's always a couple of teammates that you can think of and you're like, Oof, I don't know about that guy, but he was still part of the team. And, you know, you still had to, still had to, practice together you still had to 
play matches together, you still have the same goal, right? So you, you just, I think you just know that if you're better when everybody feels like they're part of the team, right? So definitely. And, and with your career, with going through four different head coaches, obviously Garth at the end, he would know you and you had a relationship build, but with the other three, did you always feel like you, you had to really earn your spot? Cause I think that's one thing that happens in, in any level of sport, but it always gets magnified in pro sport is when a new coach gets the gig, they want to bring in their people or they might want to change the culture, change the dynamic. So for you to go through four cycles of coaches, did you ever feel the pressure that maybe like they, they were going to overlook you or that maybe your time was done or did you feel like you earned it every single time? Well, I feel like I always earned it, but I also feel like it was harder to earn at the end. Um, interestingly enough, right? Like I felt like I was on top of the world when I joined the 91 team or 92 Olympic team. Um, I felt like I was playing great and I was just a young kid excited for the opportunity. Um, the 92 to 96 period was probably my best period of volleyball. Um, you know, I, at that time I was playing middle for the national team and my career kind of took a pretty big right angle there when they brought in the libero. Um, so life changed for me pretty quickly when the libero became a, a real thing. Um, my, you know, I said before I was a, more of an attacking middle, but two of the skills that I really had that I think were a notch above most middle players and competitive with a lot of left side players, not the best left side players, but I could pass really well and I played really good defense too. And, you know, so the game kind of changed when the libero came in. What the, the game was really looking for was middle blockers who really blocked well and served well. Attacking was mm, less important, but blocking and attacking really became the priority for the middle. So that's when I switched to the left side. And there was always a need on the left side with the Canadian program for some reason. So it seemed like the program was open to it. And in fact, they encouraged it. In fact, Garth, Actually, it was the one that really encouraged it because I, I mean, I guess he knew I could do it. I played for him at U of M on the left side. And there were some guys that were joining the program that were really good. Uh, Murray, uh, Grappentine and Steve Brinkman and, you know, some other guys, Dave Cantor, uh, you know, so there always never really seemed to be enough left side and there seemed to be more good middle players. So I made that switch and, you know, that's, that's a, that's a tough, it's a tough thing to do, right? Like to feel like you can make that switch and, and feel real confident in how you're playing. And so interestingly, the coaches that I probably should have got the most uh, leeway with Garth and, and Stelio or two that I felt I actually had to work the hardest for to, to earn my, my spot. So, yeah. I think it's any listener, you know, who, who's into, you know, since the rule changes uh, in like 99, 2000 there, they're probably just shaking their head being like, what middle today could go from middle to left side to libero when you played for Stelio there, which I think is fascinating. So yeah. just a credit to your yeah. ball control, but, but I guess as a middle in, in, you know, high school and university and pro, you would have had to serve receive anyways, right? So you were getting those reps. Yeah, I was getting those reps, but also I think my coaches, like luckily in my high school, we just 
I know Brinks talked about this too. Like we just didn't have, you know, 20 guys trying to make the, the volleyball team. We had our group of guys and everyone was in the drills. And if you could play middle, you played middle. If you could pass, you passed. If you could hit outside, you hit outside. And then, you know, throw everybody on the court to see what line you could get that was the best and go from there. But even like provincial team and all that, like, yeah. I mean, John Hickway really emphasized serve-receive with a lot of players. It didn't matter if you were middle or, or not. So I got a lot of reps with him as a young player. And um, it was an era where you did have to do it. Um, the left side guys always got more time. But, yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate. I was lucky that those skills were something I had and I was able to make that transition. And, you know, I kind of fought the whole libero thing. still. But I didn't. It was like, you're crazy, man. I'm I'm almost six foot eight. Like nobody has a six foot eight libero. Like, what do you, you know, and but you know, we had guys like Fred joining the program and you, know, you had to find a spot for him who's clearly gonna be a great player. And you know, there was other guys that, you know, maybe had had the opportunity and I was getting close to the end of my career and you know, so I understood his, his rationale, but I, I still still didn't love it. So yeah. And when we had uh, Fred Winters on the show, we talked about some of the challenges when he was kind of a newer guy with the national team about how important playing in World League is and getting those matches. And I think it's it's fascinating hearing you speak because you did well at Pan Am, you did well at World Championships, but you mentioned that the program really felt like it went all in in 92 there. And you guys had uh, just kind of a spurt there where World Cup wasn't an option, World League wasn't an option. So what was the mood around the team? Like, how are you guys finding competitions? How was the training environment? Because... I think Fred's exactly right. When you take away those opportunities to play internationally, it's hard to feel like you're you're on par or catching up with the other teams around the world, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, Josh, like uh, that. I feel like that was really a lost generation. Um, like our team had, we had a great team. Like we still had some guys from the '92 team that were involved. You know, Russ Paddock was coming back, Randy Gingera, Kent Greaves, and he was, you know, still around for a long time after that. But we had those guys. Uh, we had uh, Jason Haldane, uh, myself, Steve Smith was around, uh, Andy Cameron, Mike Chalupka, uh, Simone Berler. Um, we had, we had, I think, uh, a great group of young players. And I think the difference truly was made by not having access to those opportunities. Then we kind of got roadblocked a little bit. I think the U.S. and Cuba were always top three teams in the world, both of them, and them being in our zone really didn't do us any favors. But had we known how to play against these teams, you know, when we got to the qualifying tournament against Bulgaria in Spain or Portugal, wherever it was, you know, we probably probably wouldn't have taken us a set or two to get into a rhythm against those guys. And we might've qualified. Right. And now if you qualified for the, you know, the 96 Olympics, the program's completely set in a different trajectory. Right. And, and where we got the competition, geez, I mean, we didn't play a lot of games. We played, we played a tour with the States. It was a promotional tour by Tropicana sunscreen or something like that. And we played, a bunch of outdoor matches in their downtime, you know, traveling through the U S. So like that was a big thing for us one year. 
you know, we went to some small tournaments uh, during the pro season over Christmas one year, played in Germany and Belgium and Switzerland. Um, you know, like we, we really didn't have a lot of matches. And I think that it, it really stymied a group of players that could have really done well. When we went to the World Championships, so we qualified for 94 by beating France in Tunisia in the middle of, you know, after losing a really heartbreaking type of match to Germany in Germany. And that team was all young guys. And then we went to World Championships and we gave Russia as much as they could handle. We, you know, we had a really strong match against Brazil. And the results of that tournament could have been really different had that not really been the first time that we were playing these types of teams, right? So, I mean, there just was no money. Like, there was no money. The program, I think, was in debt and trying to figure out how to pay off bills. And, yeah, so there's – and I I know that other guys have alluded to it, but the U.S. budget was – 10 times our budget. I think our budget was like 300, 300 grand. Their budget was 3 million, you know, like, so, you know, you want to, you don't want to sit there and cry about it and stuff, but you know, the reality of it is the reality of it. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get uh, different opportunities. Yeah. I don't think we played it. That, that, that group didn't play in world league until, uh, Garth got us into World League in 98 or whatever it was. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you don't want to sit around and complain about it, but I am really curious, what is the mood in the room? Because obviously guys are competitive, like you're working your tail off with your pro clubs and coming back home. Like, is there like a little bit of a sour taste? You're kind of like, we don't really have support from our federation, but we've got a good thing going. Or was everybody pretty understanding that the the fact was you just, you didn't have a budget and therefore like World League, you need a, my understanding is you need a TV deal. You got to pay for all that travel. Like there's a lot that goes into it. So what was there a level of understanding because you guys were aware of what was happening? or was there a little bit of like come on guys like we got a good thing going you got to invest in us a little bit more here no i i can honestly say that at one point i felt like the program just might not even exist anymore like i i i really felt like that there you know the money that um i was telling you about before that they used to supplement the players staying in the training center like the program was looking for revenue to try and exist and so there was discussion about them using that money that money that money was always earmarked for uh you know the players agreed to do that to allow transfer fees um in order with the understanding i guess that the money would go to the players staying in the training center not into the general revenue right and but the program was in such dire straits that they were looking at using that money and you know like it seemed like the program was taking a few steps backwards. And I feel like that they lost some really good players like Steve Smith. You know, it's, it's tough. Like Steve Smitty was probably the player that we needed. We were always short a left side guy. When we, when we played uh, uh, Bulgaria to qualify, you know, there was always one left side position that was a little bit unsure of. And like, if that was Smitty, you know, Things might have worked out differently, but at some point you have to say, like, well, I've got a great thing going here. I know he, was, he had a great career in Belgium and was doing really well. And you, know, you have to say, like, 
people make choices, right? Is it, do I want to commit to this program where I'm not really developing much and I, you know, or do I want to, you know, focus on my pro career and you can't blame guys that wanted to do that, but we lost some guys, you know, whether they just said, Hey, I, you know, I've got a professional degree. Maybe I'll just go and, you know, start working instead of continue playing or, you know, play pro, like I said. So it's, it's hard to blame guys, but when you, when you look at it, I mean, there's a sense of frustration and a sense of, you know, disappointment that we didn't really feel like we were getting the same opportunities that, that other guys got, you know, but at the same time, we were all young. So no one really knew. We only really knew until a little bit later in our career. We were like, wow, you know, that was some pretty dark times for the program. So. Yeah, it's it's an important piece of history that I think we should be aware of. So thanks for sharing that. And it does remind me when we had Trepani on the show, he mentioned he was on the team for a couple of weeks and he gets the the kit to go to Pan Am Games and he's he's just in his room looking at all this cool stuff he gets. And I think it might have been you who walked by and went, Yeah, enjoy it, kid. I've been on the squad for ten years and I haven't got that much stuff yet. So <laughs> Yeah. 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 I mean, uh I mean that was always the super nice swag, right? The Pan Am games, we were great stuff. I don't know. There's lots of things said. It could have been me, could have been someone else, but yeah, I mean, like you certainly felt like, okay, like we're scrambling here. Right. So. And then uh, as the program starts to grow, like you're, you're going on in your career, but obviously Stelio steps in and then Glenn steps in and the program's growing. Like, do you, do you get a sense that you really laid the foundation and what the guys are doing now? Like they're, they're in a good spot because of things that you and the Koskis and the Durdens did. Like when you look back at, at everything you've contributed to, like, is it a, a fond memory or did that really leave a sour taste in your mouth just because like the, you, you didn't have support. Like you said, from, from 92 on it, it feel, felt like the program just didn't have a budget. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Garth did a, a good, you know, he, he made some good changes when he took over the program. It wasn't quite enough. And I think he had bigger plans that he couldn't get implemented. Um, so I thought that, you know, there was a nice sort of changing of the tides there a little bit. Um, at least, you know, you felt like, you know, for me, knowing Garth and knowing that he's going to do everything he can to win. That's, that's what he does. Uh, I felt like the program was in good hands and if somebody could get it done, get us back to the world, I felt like it was going to be a guy like Garth or Garth. Right. So that was, you know, positive. I think he got, you know, he had some challenges too. Like, you know, you can say you want to do things, but then there's the logistics of actually actually implementing it and money. Right. Um, to say I laid the foundation, I think, I think everybody that came before everybody lays the foundation, right? Like, so, <clears throat> you know, I, I mentioned that when I was on the team, I got $750 a month. That's when we started. Guys before me got a lot less than that, right? And guys after, they, they don't have to worry about that now. It seems like when they're in the center, they're, they're well looked after. And that's, I'm happy about that. Like, I think that's the way that it should be. And I'm, I'm glad to see it grown like that. And, you know, I know Glenn, Glenn had a, a large part in that, but I think some of the dynamics also just changed, you know, being able to split cards and some of the support that they got and Gatineau and things like that, that's, those are those are all great things, and it's it's awesome. It's set set the 
the talented players that are in the program, it allows them to get to a new level. I, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't feel like, you know, deep down that we had some unfinished business. Like, you know, I've always approached any game. Like it doesn't matter if we're playing cards or board game or volleyball or any kind of sport. You know, you try your best at the end of the day. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, you know, but you got to be able to put your best foot forward and then you can accept it. And I feel kind of like we didn't get to put our best foot forward during those years. And so there's part of me is feels a little bit like, yeah, you know, I wonder what we could have done if, you know, but, but I don't think guys were training any less harder or, you know, I don't think guys had bad attitudes or anything like that. It's just you reflect on it now and say, yeah, we had a really good group. Like, I think, geez, I think mid mid to late 90s, like we were ranked 10th in the world. You know, like it's not like we were, you know, it's not like we didn't do things. We just weren't able to really come to the big party. And, and in the end, you know, got a strong U.S. program that you're competing against strong Cuban program that you're competing against, not playing as many matches against the top teams as, as you need to, to understand the level required. Or did we just not have, we just not have the horses. And I I don't believe that for a second. I think that Canada has had strong volleyball players for a long time. And it's taken getting access to those, those opportunities to really bring out the opportunities that guys are, are taking advantage of now. Right. And I, and I think it's awesome. I, I love where the program is at, where it's been at for a few years and where it's going. It's, it's great. Nice. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, man. This has been awesome. And you'll have to come back on because I feel like we haven't touched on all your stories. But one one tradition we're trying to keep on the show is just whenever we have somebody who, who's, you know, played at the highest level like you, you just got to share. You've already told a lot, but to tell one more, just a, a funny story that kind of show that even when you're at the highest level of volleyball, something silly or odd is going to happen along the way. So I was hoping you had one more story before we let you go. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> well, there's too many. I was... Uh... <laughs> When you start thinking about all this stuff, you're like, what do you want to talk about? Wow. So, you know, I, I think I think one thing that a lot of guys that were on the team would get a real kick out of was remembering when we played. I mentioned that outdoor tournament with the States. So we, we basically went to, you know, tennis centers and played around the States uh, with them. Like, so we went to Virginia, Indianapolis, Chicago, Detroit, uh, North Carolina, and Austin, Texas. And I, I cannot tell you the story without laughing because so we were playing there as tennis center is a sweltering hot day. I don't know what it would have been 35 degrees something. And we're playing like six man indoor volleyball, but outside. Right. So you've got the sun and we've all got sunglasses on and it's windy and we're warming, <laughs> we're warming up. And I always would warm up with Russ, uh, Russ Paddock. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just playing. I'm warming up like normal, just doing the normal things and setting the ball to Russ. We're playing pepper. And he's asking me to set it lower because it's windy and ball's bothering him. He's having a hard time getting a good swing on the ball. And, you know, <laughs> Russ and I always have this, this sort of relationship. And I'm like, you know what? 
get a faster arm, hit the ball, like stop complaining, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, so I'm just giving it to him and he's starting to get really frustrated. And so I set it to him up high and he just pounds it straight down into the ground, bounces over my head and into the stands and I go and get it. We start again and he's like, set it lower. I set it the same way, just cranks it into the ground again, makes me go get it in the stands and, like everyone is watching this and they just start losing it. Like, oh, it's on the team. Like he's, and Russ is like, uh, you know, telling you how it is kind of guy. And he's like, with a few expletives, like set the ball lower. We can't play like this. And I'm like, you know what? Forget it. Like, I'm, I just keep doing it. And we went through the whole warm up like that. And I, like, I, I talked with Russ this summer, um, I managed to run into him, believe it or not. My like my dad was ill, so I just happened to run into him somehow through this COVID thing. It was really strange, um, and we start talking, and we both look at each other and we start smiling. And I tell him, I can't forget about that time in Austin, and he starts laughing because <laughs> he's like, I, I was thinking the same thing, right? Here we are trying to play the state and trying to set some kind of a, you know, a tone for how we're going to play them moving forward. And this is what happens in warm-up. <laughs> it's just, we had a good time. That tour was a lot of fun. I love that because I think people have this impression that as soon as you get to the national team, like everything's professional. There's no time to have fun. There's no time to have a personality. And here's just two guys going at it in a shouting match during Pepper before a game trying to warm up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It got us both going because I was like, you know, whatever. Let's go. And he's like, set it so we can play properly. Oh, man. And, you know, like the whole tour was a lot of fun because it was outdoors and all that stuff. But when we played, it was serious, right? Like we wanted to play and, and beat them and they wanted to beat us. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Russ. Well, man, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I had a great career. It was great to learn about it more and hear the behind the scenes stuff. Thanks so much for everything that you've shared. And like I said, we'll have to get you back on the show because I feel like we, we didn't really get into all the stories I think you can offer me and the listeners here. <laughs> I'd love to do this again. It's a lot of fun. This is great. Thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it.